0: Well, good morning, everyone. Like I said earlier, my name is Josh Miller, and I'm one of the pastors here. And if you're a guest with us today, I wanna give you a special shout-out. I'm really, really glad that you've joined us, however you found us, whether that was a friend or family member or somewhere online. Do me a quick favor, right below this live stream, there's a button that says Connect Card. If you'll fill that out, it'll give us a chance to follow up with you this coming week to see if there are ways that we can be praying for you in this season or walking alongside of you. We'd love to get to know you, so fill out that Connect Card and we will follow up. Well, here's something that I know. Clarity and consistency in communication are always important, but they're even more important in a crisis. And so what I want to do to start off today is I want to explain to you what we're going to do as a church in terms of a reopening plan, okay? So I want to give you what we're thinking in terms of a reopening plan. Here's the big idea. We're passionate about seeing lives changed by the gospel. That is why we exist. That is our mission, and gathering together in person is a big part of that. So we do want to meet together again as soon as we can, but we're not going to do that until it's safe. So in keeping with the guidelines of the CDC and the White House Coronavirus Task Force and the state of Virginia, we've developed a phased reopening plan that tracks along with the phases that those groups have put out. And we've summarized our plan into a really helpful graphic that I believe is going to be right here on the screen next to me and is also going to be available on our homepage as soon as this service is over. So if you have more questions, you can go and check that out after the service. And here is our goal we want to try to add back one in person activity. Per phase, and I think you'll kind of see what I mean as I walk through this. So, in phase one, groups of 10 or less are permitted to gather together as long as they practice strict social distancing. And so, next week, we're going to start encouraging our D groups, if you're comfortable, if our D groups are comfortable, to start gathering together. So, that's our add in in phase one. Phase two, in phase two, groups of 50 or less are permitted to gather together as long as they practice moderate social distancing. So in phase two, we are going to encourage our Bible studies that are comfortable to begin meeting in person once again. In phase three, any size group is permitted to meet as long as they practice limited social distancing. And so in phase three, we're planning on hosting several smaller church-wide gatherings. And then following phase three, what I'll call back to normal, is when there are no restrictions on group sizes and social distancing limitations have been lifted. At this point, we are planning to wait until social distancing restrictions have been lifted to gather again for our regular Sunday morning worship service. And I know that if you're listening to me and you are part of a vulnerable population, or if you work with vulnerable populations, say in the hospital system or in healthcare, you may not be comfortable meeting together with other people for a while, and I just want you to know that as a church, we understand that, and we respect that, and we have been thinking for you, and there are two particular ways that we are going to continue ministering to you in this season. The first is that we will continue to offer digital engagement options for our D groups and our Bible studies. So if you are not comfortable yet reengaging in that space, you'll still be able to do that digitally, even if other members of your D group are meeting in person. So that's the first way that we want to continue ministering to you. The second way is that we've recently made a significant investment in our technology that will allow us to continue live streaming our worship services in a high quality way once we do start gathering together again on Sunday mornings. That way, if you aren't able or you aren't comfortable to gather with us as a church on Sunday morning for a while, you can still stay engaged online and you can still be a meaningful meaningful part of what we are doing as a church. This plan is subject to change, just like our situation is subject to change, but I wanted you to be aware of what we're thinking so that you know we have a plan, we're being prayerful, and we want to get back together, but we're going to wait until it is safe to do that. If you have questions, we'd love to dialogue with you. Please email elders at centerseaville.com. That's elders at centerseaville.com, and we will do our very best to get you answers to your questions. Look, leading through crisis requires a lot of wisdom, and I know that emotions can run very high when it comes to the topic of reentry. So before we jump into our sermon today, I just want to stop and pray, and I want to invite you to pray and ask God to give us wisdom and give us unity as a church in this reentry season. So would you just bow your heads and pray with me? Heavenly Father, we need wisdom from you, and you tell us in James that if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, and, and he will give it generously without fault. So God, would you give us wisdom as a church to navigate this season well? And would you give us unity as a church? Would you help us to be a church that is unified in the midst of this season and is not disunified? And would you bless our efforts to gather together again? Lord, we love you and we need you and we pray all these things in your son's name. Amen. Amen. Well, I think some of you know that I played football in college, so I was a college football player as a big part of my college career, and for my first two years of college, I had a very hard time reconciling my faith in Christ with my college athletic career. It felt like all of my teammates did nothing but party on the weekends, and that made me really, really lonely. But my junior year, we hired somebody named Glenn Young as my position coach. Glenn had played linebacker in the NFL. He'd actually started as a linebacker in a Super Bowl in the 90s. But more than that, Glenn was a strong Christian. And over my two years with Glenn, he not only helped me become a better linebacker, but he also helped me understand how to be both a Christian and an athlete in college. You see, Coach Young's example really helped me grow spiritually. And we all need examples, don't we? No matter what age you are, no matter what stage of life you're in, I think we all recognize the need for examples. We need examples in the workplace to help us learn how to be a professional. We need examples in college to help us know how to succeed in school. We need examples in marriage to help us learn how to build a healthy marriage. We need examples in parenting to help us know how to raise godly kids and convince us that we really haven't messed them up yet. Right? We need examples in all areas of life but we need them particularly in our spiritual lives. For whatever reason, God has made it that we need examples in our spiritual lives. Here's here's how I'd say it. To grow spiritually, we need more than books and podcasts. We need living, breathing examples. We need more than books and podcasts. Those, Those things are great. We need living, breathing examples. And This is particularly true if you consider yourself a skeptical person. This is particularly true for you because you might need someone to show you Christianity before you will be ready to believe Christianity. I know that that's been the case for many people in our church. So whether you're a skeptic, a seasoned saint, or somewhere in between, here's what we know. We all need examples to help us grow. And that's what we're going to get in our text today. Our text is going to give us two examples of godliness that we can learn from. So if you have a Bible, you can type to or turn to Philippians chapter two, starting in verse 19, because that is where we are going to be this morning. And while you're turning there, let me give you a little bit of context. So we're at the end of chapter two of Philippians. And this chapter has really been all about one big idea, one principle that was found in Philippians chapter two, verse three. And that principle is this, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. And then for the rest of chapter two, the apostle Paul gives us four examples of people who have lived out that principle. The first example is Christ himself. He talks about Christ's humility and dying for us on the cross. The second example is the apostle Paul and how he offered himself as a sacrifice for the sake of the churches. But I think Paul knew that if he only included those two examples, we would be like, well, yeah, but that's Jesus and the apostle Paul. And so I think Paul included these last two examples because they're a little bit easier for you and I to relate to. So let's meet our first example, a guy named Timothy. Look at verse 19 with me. It says this, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. So Paul wanted to visit the Philippian church, but he couldn't because he was in jail. So instead, he planned to send his young protege, Timothy, on his behalf. So what do we know about Timothy? Well, apparently Timothy was uniquely godly. Paul said that when it came to being genuinely concerned about the interests of others, that no one compared with Timothy. Timothy, Absolutely no one compared with him. And that made Timothy very different in the church at Rome. You see in verse 21 what it says? They all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. This is the second time in this letter that Paul has referenced this problem. There was great selfishness among the leaders of the church in Rome. The Roman church was all about self-promotion. Rather than considering, considering the welfare of others, the various leaders were competing with one another for influence, status, and social media followings. I know it's weird because we've moved beyond that in our day today, but there's this weird problem that the Church of Rome had. But Timothy was different. Look at verse 22. But you know Timothy's proven worth. How is a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. I hope therefore to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that I shortly that shortly I myself will come also. So apparently the Philippians already knew Timothy. Do you see what it says there that he had proven worth? So they had seen him in action. They had not just heard that he was godly, but they had seen him be godly. They had seen him be others oriented. And we also learned that Timothy had some ministry experience. You see what Paul said, that Timothy had served with him in the gospel like a son serves with a father. So as a result, because he had proven godliness and he had ministry experience, the apostle Paul wanted to send Timothy to the Philippians as an example. You see, Paul was in Rome watching the destructive power of self-promotion, and he wanted to protect the Philippian church from being infected by it. So he said, I want to send you Timothy because he's such a living, breathing example of what it looks like to put the interests of others before yourself. Now, what I love about Timothy is that he was young. Scholars guess that he was in his early to mid-20s at this point, so probably something like 24. And if we're honest, most 24-year-olds are not defined by humility and spiritual maturity. I mean, I know I certainly wasn't at 24. But I love Timothy's example because he shows us what's possible. I love his example because he shows us what's possible, and this is what it is. It's not only possible to be serious about your faith in your 20s, it's possible to set the pace in your 20s. It's not only possible to be serious about your faith in your 20s, it's possible to set the pace in your 20s. Paul said in all of Rome, in this whole city, in this whole church, I have no one like Timothy, I have no one like this 24-year-old protege. There was no one who compared with him. This young guy set the pace of spiritual maturity for the entire church. Look, it is no secret that we are a young church. This past week, we actually eclipsed the 100 mark in terms of membership, so that was pretty neat. And I went back and I, and I averaged out all the ages, and the average age of a member of Center Church right now is 286 it is 28.6 years old, and what, you know, if you're younger than that, that probably sounds old. If you're older than that, that probably sounds young. But just, just keep this in mind. The average age of other churches like ours in the country is 54. So we are almost half of the common average age of most churchgoers. We are a young church. But here's what we learned from Timothy's example. A young church can also be a mature church. A young church can also be a mature church. In fact, Timothy shows us that youth can be a catalyst for spiritual maturity. I mean, that's what Paul wanted, right? Paul wanted to send Timothy, this young godly guy, to the Philippian church to say, hey, look at him. Look at his example and follow his example. Call it idealism. Call it naivete. Call it strong faith. But young people tend to believe they can change the world and throughout history, some of them have been right. Young people tend to believe that they can change the world, and throughout history, some of them have been right. Did you know that every major revival in Western church history has started on or near a university campus? The Reformation started at the University of Wittenberg. The First Great Awakening started at Oxford, and the Modern American Missions Movement started at Williams College. Now, why is that? Well, there's there's probably a lot of reasons why, but I think one one reason is that when a young person is really serious about their faith, it tends to galvanize and motivate the rest of us. It tends to galvanize and motivate the rest of us. Sometimes it's a reminder of the passion that we once had. Other times it's a silent rebuke of the apathy or materialism that we've succumbed to. For whatever reason, when a young person, when a 24-year-old, 25-year-old, 26-year-old is passionate about the gospel, when they are all in for Christ, it tends to galvanize the faith of people around them, and God has often used that to ignite the church in spiritual renewal. So if you fit in the category of young, if you would put yourself in that category in our church as you're watching, here's the question that I want you to wrestle with. Is your faith galvanizing the faith of others? Is your level of passion for the gospel, is your level of commitment for Christ causing those around you to say, man, remember when I was like that? Man, maybe we really can see this city transform. Maybe we really can send out missionaries to the nations. Maybe we really can be a part of planting churches and university towns all across our region. Maybe we really can do that. Is your faith galvanizing others? Timothy teaches us that it can't. Timothy teaches us that it is possible to be both young and to be mature as a church, which brings us to our second example, a man named Epaphroditus. Epaphroditus. Look at verse 25 with me. I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. So Paul ended verse 23 by saying, hey, I want to send Timothy to come see you, but I can't send him just yet. But in the meantime, I'm going to send you a guy named Epaphroditus. I'm going to send you another example of godliness. Now, you've probably never heard of Epaphroditus because he's only mentioned here and one other place in the Bible. So what do we know about him? Well, Paul tells us five things in this verse, and each of these characteristics is an example for you and I to emulate. First, Paul said, he is my brother. Paul said, he is my brother. Throughout the New Testament, family language was the primary way that Christians spoke to one another. So father and son and mother and daughter and brother and sister. And they did that because they understood something very important. Church is more of a family you belong to than an event you attend. Church is more of a family that you belong to than an event you attend. Church wasn't something that they attended on Sundays. It was a spiritual family that God adopted them into, and apparently Epaphroditus understood that. Paul referred to him as my brother. Next, Paul said, he is my fellow worker. He said, he is my fellow worker. Epaphroditus was serious about his faith. Just like Paul, Epaphroditus worked hard to grow in godliness, and he worked hard to share the gospel with his family and friends. One of our values here at our church is that every disciple makes disciples that every disciple makes disciples, that we are all called to a meaningful part in God's mission in the world. And Epaphroditus is a great example of that. He wasn't apathetic, right? He wasn't wasn't disengaged. He was out there. He was engaged. And I love the fact that he wasn't a pastor and he wasn't an apostle. He was a regular member of the church in Philippi, but he was working hard for the gospel in the world. Next, Paul said, he is my fellow soldier. Paul said, he is my fellow soldier, It's important to understand that the Bible describes the Christian life as warfare. The Bible describes the Christian life as warfare. It is a war between good and evil, between light and darkness, between the kingdom of Christ and the kingdom of Satan. And I know as modern people, that sounds a bit silly to us, right? The idea of personal supernatural evil that we're battling against feels a little bit Salem witch trial to us right? But, but just stick with me for one moment. Isn't it reasonable if you believe in personal supernatural good, like God, to also believe in personal supernatural evil? I mean, doesn't it follow logically that if one exists, it's likely that the other does as well? The reality is that as modern people, we have to wrestle with the fact that the New Testament is explicitly clear That there is an unseen battle going on all around us between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of darkness that we are caught up in. Paul understood that. And apparently Epaphroditus did too, because Paul and Epaphroditus stood side by side. They stood side by side as fellow soldiers in the cause of Christ. And let me ask you something in a war, what happens if one side doesn't take it seriously? They get destroyed right? In a war, if one side doesn't take it seriously, they get destroyed. And here's what that means for us. If you're a Christian, you need to be ready to fight. You need to be ready to fight for your marriage, for your kids, for your holiness, and for your church. If you don't, things will fall apart. If you don't fight, things will fall apart. I see this in marriage a lot. So whenever I do premarital counseling, the first thing that I always say is this, Most marriages don't fall apart. Most marriages are never built. Most marriages don't fall apart. Most marriages are never built. When people say, my spouse and I just fell out of love, I usually think to myself, you didn't fall out of love. You stopped fighting to stay in love. You didn't fall out of love. You stopped fighting to stay in love. Honestly, if Meredith didn't fight to stay in love with me, she would have fallen out of love with me a very long time ago. Look, Satan doesn't want marriages to last. He hates marriages. So he will throw everything at you when you get married. I mean, you married people out there. Haven't you felt this way? Like you didn't have nearly as many problems and then you got married. And then you get married and you've got all kinds of problems. You've got money problems and you've got family problems and you've got in-law problems and you've got parenting problems and you've got sex problems. Right? I heard one pastor say that when you're dating, Satan tries to do everything he can to get you to have sex, and when you're married, he does everything he can to keep you from having sex. Right? Isn't that just the reality? When you get married, it feels like things are coming at you from every direction. It's because Satan hates marriages. Satan doesn't want kids growing up in families with two parents who are engaged and who love them and who are showing them the ways of the gospel. You know what he wants to do? He wants to isolate moms, He wants to isolate moms and he wants to overwhelm them with an amount of responsibility that they were never intended to bear by themselves. He wants to isolate moms and he wants to destroy families. So hear me, if you are married or if you desire to be married, you have to fight for your marriage. If you don't fight for your marriage, if you you treat it flippantly, it will fall apart. Satan will take you out. That is a sobering truth, but it is an important truth. And let me also say, If you're listening to me right now and you have experienced the heartache of divorce, there is still hope for you. In any area of our lives where we fall short of the ideal, the grace of God fills in the gap. You can still fight for your kids. You can still fight for your family, and your family can still grow and be blessed. In fact, Timothy, who we just talked about a minute ago, was probably raised by a single mom. Timothy was probably raised by a single mom, and he became a mighty man of the kingdom. So there is hope for your life. There's hope for your family. So Epaphroditus was a fellow soldier with Paul. It also says that he was your messenger and minister to my need. Well, what does that mean? Well, Epaphroditus was from Philippi. So he was sent from Philippi to bring a gift to Paul. You see, the Philippians heard that Paul, their founding pastor, was in prison. And that he was lonely and that he was uh, not well clothed and that he was malnourished. And so they took up a special offering for Paul. You know, they they, they collected things like clothing and food and money, but they needed somebody who would take it to Paul, right? You can't just Venmo back then. They needed somebody that could take this offering to Paul. And it's worth noting that the journey from Philippi to Rome was 800 miles. It was a six-week journey one way. So, they needed someone who would volunteer to take 12 weeks off of work and to go on the first midterm mission trip to deliver this gift to relieve the affliction and the suffering of their founding pastor. And Epaphroditus volunteered. He raised his hand. He said, I'll take it and I'll go. So, it's obvious that Epaphroditus was an example of godliness and was an example of someone who thought of the needs of others before his own. He was a great guy to have around. But Paul says he wants to send him away. Now, why would he do that? Well, look at verse 26. I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, for he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Simply put, Epaphroditus missed his church. Epaphroditus missed his church and he longed to be with them and was anxious because they had heard that he was very, very sick. And in fact, he was. Look at verse 27. Indeed, he, Epaphroditus, was ill, near to death. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So apparently, this long journey took a toll on Epaphroditus, and he got really sick. He was so sick that it was touch and go there for a while, and Paul didn't know if he was going to recover. But by God's grace, Epaphroditus did recover, and at this point, he was ready to make his return journey. And Paul was eager to send him. Verse 29, so receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. So Paul instructed the Philippians to receive Epaphroditus back with joy and honor. And this is an important principle for us to learn. We need to honor people who serve the Lord. I love how Paul said it in Romans chapter 12, verse 10. He said, outdo one another in showing honor. Outdo one another in showing honor. This is a practical way to consider the interest of others before your own. Let's be a church that goes over the top in showing honor to one another. Honor your D group leader. Honor your MC leader. Honor our worship team that leads you to worship. Honor our pastors who preach God's word to you. We want to create an honor culture here at Center Church, just like Paul wanted the Philippians to create in their church. So Timothy and Epaphroditus were both living, breathing examples of what it looks like to put the interest of others before your own. But when it comes to examples, we're not just supposed to watch them, we're also supposed to learn from them. So, what can we learn from these two guys? Well, at least two things. Here's number one if you're taking notes. If you want to grow spiritually, you need someone to follow. If you want to grow spiritually, you need someone to follow. In verse 22, Paul said that he and Timothy were like father and son. You see, Timothy had a really tough time family background. His mother and his grandmother were both believers, but his father was not. And so it's very likely that when Timothy started following Christ, he was verbally abused by his father. And many scholars believe that later on, Timothy's father abandoned his family entirely. So here's what we know about Timothy. Functionally, he didn't have a dad. And here's what we know about the apostle Paul. He wasn't married and he didn't have any kids. So Timothy needed a dad, and Paul needed a son, and that is what they became together. Paul took Timothy under his wing and helped him grow as a man of God. That's why Timothy was so spiritually mature at age 24, because he had spent a decade watching the apostle Paul, and this is what it teaches us. If you want to grow spiritually, you need someone to follow. You need someone you can watch. You need someone who can help you take the principles of Christianity and put them into practice in your life. I heard one leader say that in every season of life, you need books you can read and people who can read you. You need books you can read and people who can read you. You see, books and conferences and podcasts are great. They really are helpful, but they're limited. You don't really learn how to pray from a book you learn how to pray by listening to other people pray. You don't really learn how to be transparent and how to confess sin from a podcast. You learn how to be transparent and how to confess sin from watching other people be transparent and confess sin, which is why, by the way, D group leaders, we always tell you that you set the pace of transparency in your group. Everyone else will be as transparent and, and will confess as much sin as you do, right? So Timothy teaches us that if you want to grow spiritually... If you want to grow in Christ's likeness, you need someone to follow. So I just want to ask two quick questions, two questions of application for you. Number one, are you following someone? Are you following someone? Do you have someone who is leading you in the faith? If you can find somebody like the Apostle Paul, I would say stick with him. But for the most part, I think you're going to want a couple of people. You're probably going to want somebody that you can learn uh, about parenting from, maybe another person you can learn about how to be a Christian at work, and maybe a third person to learn theology from. However you do it, I would ask you the question, are you following someone? Do you have someone that you're learning from? And here's the second question that I would ask you. Are you worth following? Are you worth following? Is your faith a good example to others in our church? If we multiplied your godliness, your level of service, and your financial stewardship across our church, would it be a good thing or a bad thing? If we multiplied your level of maturity across our church, would it be a good thing or would it be a bad thing? Timothy teaches us that if we want to grow spiritually, we need someone to follow, but you can only find those people if you're connected to community. You can only find those people if you were involved in one of our missional communities and if you're spending time with other believers in our church, which brings us to the second principle that we learn from this text, which is number two. If you want to grow spiritually, you need a church to belong to. If you want to grow spiritually, you need a church to belong to. Let's think about Epaphroditus for a minute, right? How did Epaphroditus become so mature? I mean, Timothy spent 10 years with the Apostle Paul. That's a pretty awesome mentorship. That's a pretty great internship program. But how did Epaphroditus become so mature? Well, from what we can tell, it was his relationship with his local church, Epaphroditus had a very strong relationship with his church. The text says that he longed to see them again, and he was distressed by their anxiety. We know that he served at his church. When they needed a volunteer to do a difficult task, he raised his hand. He said, hey, I'll do it. And we know that he was engaged with community at his church. He longed to see his friends. He longed to see his fellow church members, and his return, Paul said, would bring them great joy. Here's what this teaches us. Epaphroditus hadn't become mature by attending seminary, listening to podcasts, or going on personal spiritual retreats. He'd become mature by belonging to his local church. You see, friends, the church is the weight room of the soul. The church is the weight room of the soul. It's the place where you grow spiritually strong. And that's why we make such a big deal about groups and membership here, because we want you to grow spiritually. I want you to be strong. And that happens as you belong to the church. To put it another way, to grow strong, you must belong. To grow strong, you must belong. God's desire for every Christian is that they would become increasingly committed to the local church. God's desire for every Christian is that they would become increasingly committed to the local church. So is there a next step that you need to take? Is there a next step that you need to take with the church? Maybe you've been watching online and you need to fill out that connect card. Maybe you've been attending one of our Bible studies and you need to pursue membership. I don't know what your next step is, but I know that God is calling you to take one. So is there a next step that you need to take. It is clear in scripture that commitment leads to growth. Commitment leads to growth. If you are not committed, you will not grow, but if you are committed, you can almost not help but to grow. But if we're honest, we struggle with commitment, don't we? And there's a lot of reasons probably why we struggle with commitment, but I think a big one of them I know in my life is fear is fear. Maybe you're afraid of committing because you're afraid of letting people down. Maybe you're afraid that if you commit to the church, if you commit to a missional community, you'll realize that you are not spiritually mature as everybody else, and you're afraid that you will let everyone down. That's a very legitimate fear. It's one that I even feel as a pastor. But I want to leave you with good news today. I want to leave you with good news that because of the gospel, it is possible for you to overcome fear and to be committed to the church. How so? Well, the gospel of Jesus Christ says that you aren't good enough on your own, but that Jesus is. That you don't measure up, but that he did. That in your own goodness, you would not be justified. But in the goodness of Jesus Christ, you were declared accepted and worthy and loved by God Almighty. I was preaching in an old country church one time when I said this. I said, by attending church this morning, you are making an important statement to your community. And the statement is this, I am a train wreck. I am a train wreck. I am not a mistaker, I am a sinner. I do not need a life coach. I need a savior. I do not need to turn over a new leaf. I need an entirely new life." And that got people's attention that morning, but it really shouldn't have because that is the fundamental truth claim of Christianity. Friend, listen to me. Christianity is not for people who have their acts together. Christianity is for people like you and me who know that we can't do this on our own. Christianity is not for people who have built an impressive religious resume and are looking for one more bullet point. Christianity is for screw-ups. Christianity is for failures. Christianity is for people who are weak. It's for people who need help. It's for people who need a savior. It's for people like you and me who do not have it all together, but who through the power of the gospel can change. Our church is full of people who are in desperate need of grace. And so if that's you, if you fit into that category, then you will fit right in here. Jesus has done everything necessary for your salvation. Jesus has done everything necessary for my salvation. Let's let that good news motivate us to be godly examples and to follow the godly examples that we have in the scriptures and in our lives. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the scriptures and that in them, we see what is possible. We see that it's possible to be 24 years old and to be passionate and to shape an entire church culture and to catalyze spiritual growth. Thank you that we see the example that you can be a regular church member, but you can grow by leaps and bounds in your faith and you can do meaningful things for the kingdom. Lord, I just pray today that you would give us faith to respond to the examples that we have in scripture and faith to respond to the examples that we have in our lives, that we might grow to become more and more like your son. We love you. We need you. and We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.